Hello, and welcome to The Bunker Daily. I'm Dorian Linsky. My guest today is a scientist who lectures at University College London, a broadcaster who regularly appears on Radio 4, and the author of books including Creation and How to Argue with a Racist. His latest book is called Control, The Dark History and Troubling Present of Eugenics. Adam Rutherford, thanks for joining me. Nice to be here, Dorian. So having argued with racists, is this, <laughs> are you now going to argue with eugenicists? Well, the eugenicists aren't quite as uh, overt in their exposure these days, I suppose. There, there is a sort of current trend amongst what I describe as fringe science cosplayers to sort of to try and rejuvenate or, or, or redeem eugenics from its irredeemably toxic past. You write in the book, the idea that science and politics are independent is demonstrably and doggedly false. I mean, obviously, that is especially true of genetics. But I mean, does that hold true across the board? Because I think in some areas, people like to believe that they they are. For example, would that be advice on, you know, pandemics or whatever? You want to believe that the scientists aren't being political. Yeah, I think it does. I, you're, you're right to point out that it's definitely the case when it comes to the study of biology and specifically when it comes to humans. We, we do find it practically impossible to separate political decisions in science from the sort of amoral and apolitical nature of data as it should be. But that's the sort of uh, the dream of the scientific revolution from the 16th, 17th century onwards. I suppose it is less true in astrophysics, but I have had these discussions with physicists where they say, well, what are you talking about? How can science be, uh, science, science is the opposite of political and the opposite of moral. And, the, and other astrophysicists chip in and say, yeah, but you know, the, the reason you're studying this is because a grant was given to you because your application was more successful or better written than, than another one. So in that sense, I think it is impossible to extricate the science from politics, even though the, the noble aim is that it rises above that. We'll start with the first phase of eugenics, which is the first half of the book. Could you just briefly explain uh, what the word means and who coined it? In the 19th century, Francis Galton is the person who comes up with it. He's Darwin's half-cousin, and he's rather enamoured with the work of Darwin, who had 10 years earlier published The Origin of Species, in which he describes how all organisms are mutable. They can change over time via this process of natural selection. First chapter of The Origin of Species is really about artificial selection to demonstrate that mutability. And Galton takes the view that now we have a science which shows how agricultural breeding actually works, the mechanisms of evolutionary change, and that this is something that society should adopt in order to improve the, the I'm using air quotes, the, mm. the quality of the British stock. Now, it's an old idea. It becomes scientified in the 19th century in this, in the wake of Darwin and evolution. And Francis Galton is the sort of key driver of that. It's an eternal idea, as far as I can make out. In all societies, we've had attempts to control populations and control social structures and stratas via selective breeding. Plato talks about it very explicitly in books five and six of Republic and all through the Western canon of classical literature, there are references to infanticide and selective breeding. But it really comes to pass in a scientific way as it's thought of in the 19th century, but really a pseudoscientific way under the auspices of Galton in the wake of Darwin. Uh, his unpublished novel sounds like a, a real treat. Was that one of the highlights of your research? Oh, it's terrible. I mean, it is just terrible. It's a moment of sort of semi-levity in an otherwise pretty dark story. But um, towards the end of his life, 1910, I think it is, he dies in 1911, he writes a novel in which he, it's a sort of description 
of his now long-standing fantasy of a, of a eugenically organized society, a utopia. It's called Can't Say Where, which is a, a, a society where couples are married off together based on their quality, their, their aesthetic judgments on their ability to count and, and what they look like and how they perform and others are uh, shoveled off into <laughs> sort of farming and agricultural scenarios. It's just not very good. I think that scientists should always go to extreme lengths to avoid the temptation to write a novel in which they expound their views. There are very few examples where scientists have been successful in that domain. It sort of catches, you know, Galton is the kind of progenitor of, of this idea. And then, it, you know, you show that it becomes quite startlingly popular, and particularly in America, to the extent that Hitler ended up being inspired by American eugenicists. What was it about the American psyche, the American political scene at that time that meant that it kind of took off there more than in the UK? Well, I think it, it did take off in the UK intellectually and had great popular appeal across the political spectrum from both socialists and, and conservatives. But we, we narrowly escaped it becoming legislation. Now, the ideas developed mm. in parallel in Germany and the UK and, and America and other countries as well. But then it becomes sort of formalised via Galton in, in, in the UK, but then we don't implement it as legislation. Whereas, as the ideas are inspired by Galton in America, what with, what with the sort of Galton, Galton equivalent, a chap called Charles Davenport, who meets Galton in the 1890s, takes his, is inspired, takes his ideas back to America. Now, in all three countries and others, you've got similar but different sort of political and social landscapes into which eugenics flourishes. And in the UK, it's much more class-based than, than racially-based, but in America, with new waves of immigration into Ellis Island and new development of, of things like the, the application of the IQ tests to assess notions of intellectual ability, it really beds down very successfully. And by 1907, you get the first eugenics legislation in the state of uh, Indiana. And then over the next few decades, that number goes up to 31 states. So they have a developed eugenics policy in the majority of, of the states, including you know, California being the most vigorous, the most robust adopter, which is always a bit surprising given how we think of California as being such a liberal state. But because of the success of the legislation and the success of the eugenics programs in America, the German development of eugenics, which also occurs, begins in the 1890s, develops through the Weimar Republic years and then becomes, well, it, it becomes adopted into the policies of the Third Reich from 1933 onwards in a deranged way. They look to the Americas, they look to the legislation and the scientific inspiration of the American eugenicists for direct, not only inspiration, but also funding. So the Rockefeller Foundation funds eugenics research institutes in, in Germany all the way up to 1938. So, you know, well wow. past the point where we know that Hitler's a baddie. A piece of legislation written in 1920 by a chap called Harry Lachlan to normalize the, the what was becoming ad hoc eugenics legislations in multiple states. He, he wrote a sort of boilerplate eugenics legislation for, for other states to adopt. That becomes translated, it is translated into German in 1933, uh, and becomes one of the first pieces of legislation that Hitler passes in June of that year. So it's so fundamental to the Nazi ideology, which escalates into the Third Reich, but not just inspired by 
directly translated from, funded by, and intellectually driven by American eugenicists? Well, for obvious reasons, we do tend to associate eugenics with with the far right, with racism. But, you know, it attracted not just sort of socialists and progressives, but even, and this was a real surprise to me, black members of the NAACP. Um, how should we assess those sort of people's sort of motives? Now, I mean, we know that we know where eugenics led. They didn't. You could say, well, they should have... <laughs> They should have had a little bit of foresight, but what explains the fact that it is appeal that it appealed to people who weren't racist, who weren't on the right? In the case of W. E. B. Du Bois, who's who's the um, you know the great African American scholar, one of the founders of the NAACP, he believed very much in or was very interested in the idea of racial uplift. So, how do we improve the quality of lives and the the position in society of African Americans? You know, only one or two generations from the uh, 1864 and ending of uh, abolition of slavery. I describe him as having eugenics tendencies. He's, I don't think he really is in the same league as, as uh, the more robust, mm. enthusiastic eugenicists, but does consider very carefully that African-Americans at the top end of socioeconomic status in America would be better off breeding more than those at the b- bottom end in order to engender racial uplift. So it was seen as a progressive way of improving the quality of a group of people. And in a similar way, in particularly in, in the UK, Beatrice and Sidney Webb, the Fabian Society founders, and also Beveridge and other left-wing thinkers are also thinking about improving the general quality of the population via selective breeding or reducing the reproductive rights of people at the bottom end of society. Another sort of domain of this, which I think is a, is a little bit perplexing, is that first wave feminism as well is very closely associated with eugenics. And some of the key protagonists in that, in the UK, Mary Stopes particularly, but in America, mm. Mar- Margaret Sanger. Stopes' fundamental interest in granting reproductive rights to women is, is in order to prevent Jews and Prussians and Irish from reproducing, as this was felt as the eternal threat that an underclass was threatening the stability of the sort of natural order of society. So in all those cases, I mean, Stokes is an absolute horror in this story. She's an out and out racist who writes love poetry to Hitler well into the 1930s. But again, they're thinking about the maintenance of hegemonic power structures through attempting to control reproduction. I mean, there's some pretty hair-raising stuff from, from Churchill as well. And of course, whenever Church, Churchill's a bit of a, a kind of historical live wire these days, and one of the things that, that people often claim about him or, or any sort of other figure when these sort of old quotations are kind of held up um, is, oh, it was a different time. Oh, you know, everybody was thinking this. But of course, that's never true. You know, there were always people who were anti-slavery. There's always been anti-racists and there were anti-eugenicists um, like G.K. Chesterton. What was the opposition's case back then? What was the kind of moral case at the time when it was broadly fashionable? Yes, it was broadly fashionable. And, and, and like we've been saying, you know, across political divides. But as you say, to give people from the significant characters from history a pass on the grounds that just views were different, I think is a pretty specious argument because the implication is that there was a block that everyone thought exactly the same and they could be forgiven for it when actually there were robust oppositions. You mentioned G.K. Chesterton. He's one of the few people who comes out of this history relatively unscathed, although he, he, many people argue, I think successfully, that he expressed some pretty anti-Semitic views during his mm. life as well. The foundation for his opposition, his lifelong 
and opposition and successful campaigning against eugenics is based on his Catholicism. I think that he correctly identifies that all of the sort of pseudo-psychiatric or vague categories that are imposed upon lower socioeconomic status people by higher socioeconomic status people in order to justify their eugenic selection, I think he correctly identifies something that none of them do, which is that it targets the poor more, more than anything else. And so as a Christian, he argues that we should be protecting the poor and that we should be lo looking after them rather than extinguishing them. And he, he uses his customary wit and literary chops to argue these cases over over decades and successfully. So Churchill being the main driver of legislation in the UK, drafting multiple bills over the 19, uh, well, the Edwardian period, which include enforced sterilization, campaigning the Asquith government to use what the, the relatively newly discovered Röntgen rays, what we call X-rays, to sterilize men and women. Chesterton successfully campaigns, he lobbies a parliament. Josiah Wedgwood, one of the Darwin clan, is the MP who in parliament vociferously opposes it. And the, the, the sterilization enforced sterilization legislation is removed from the Mental Deficiencies Act. And that was the end of it. We never had eugenics in this country as a result. One of the themes that sort of comes out, I suppose, a kind of really strong subtext in the book is about the complexity of people's, of, of certain scientists' legacies. You know, there are things in here, like you said, family planning, IQ tests, maybe not as important, but, you know, they're a very, very normalized part of life, are entangled with eugenics at various points. And you've got these scientists that do remarkable things and make discoveries that scientists still use today. And yet their names are now being removed from plaques and from buildings. How much of a live conversation is it in the scientific community? Like, the, what do you do with, because it's not the same, I think, as a problematic artist even, because essentially the world could, could live without even like, you know, it could live without Michael Jackson records. We couldn't live so well without some of the discoveries of these people that were also guilty of these rather sort of heinous beliefs. I mean, is this something that science is being sort of slow to wrestle with? I think that's a, it's an excellent question. I'm just going to take issue with the, not with the Michael Jackson bit, because <laughs> I'm not that fussed about Michael Jackson. There's a different argument to be made within there, which is that scientific discoveries are waiting to be discovered. If, you, if, if we accept that there is an objective reality out there and we understand the process by which we discover scientific laws... If Darwin hadn't discovered the, the, the mechanism for natural selection, well, Alfred Russell Wallace did at approximately the same time, and other people would have done later. But I would argue that no one is ever going to write a song as perfect as, oh God, I'm suddenly aware that I'm talking to a music journalist here, and this feels like a real test. No judgment. The song that we were listening to this morning with my daughter was The, the Last of the Great American Dynasties by Taylor Swift. That is a perfect pop song as far as I'm concerned. And no one, if you rerun the tape of history again, no one will write a song as good as that. Whereas the science will be discovered again and again and again. We will, we will rerun the tape and whether it's Darwin or Wallace or Fisher or Galton, those ideas will resurface uh, inevitably because they are descriptions of objective reality. So that, that was a long and waffly answer to a different question. In terms of us dealing with our legacy of certain scientists 
and their what we now regard as obnoxious views. I think science has been slow to to acknowledge this, and I think that the posthumous celebration of people like Ronald Fisher and and Galton and Pearson, who are names that are very familiar to scientists, but possibly not to people outside mm. of science. Those are political acts, which I think are antithetical to science anyway, on the grounds that they seem to fulfill the old school narrative of great men history, this Whiggish view that you can draw a line from, I don't know, you know, Aristotle to Nobel Prize winners of today, only punctuated by individual men. And it's a strange thing that in science, we've tried to make it less about individuals and less about people and their intellectual and political baggages that come with their descriptions of, of objective reality. And yet, we continue to do it. Well, what, I mean, I suppose what we're talking about here, why, why all this stuff is so sort of um, problematic and does have such a sinister tint is because of what the Nazis did with this idea. Mm. Is it as simple as saying that, that, that its association with Nazism meant that, you know, by the end of World War II, it was dead? I mean, we're going to talk a bit more about, I suppose, kind of nouveau eugenics ideas now. But I mean, is it, is it a sort of rare case of such sort of horror that a whole scientific discipline was, if, if not, if it didn't entirely disappear, was, was discredited? It's a fabulous question. I did toy with the the uh, in a in a draft of writing uh, a sort of an alt history where the Holocaust never happened, and or maybe the Nazis never rose to power. What would the status of eugenics be now? Because the association with the the atrocities of the Holocaust with with eugenics effectively it sort of killed it as a popular idea. But one of the things I argue in the book is that although it, it became irredeemably toxic as a word, the practice did continue, not in the same sort of genocidal levels as it had done in the years preceding the end of the Second World War. But the idea of selective breeding definitely continued. The, the popularity of concepts that would unequivocally be associated with eugenics in the previous 50 years definitely continued and continue to this day. Massively reduced numbers mostly, but the most recent enforced uh, sterilization, involuntary sterilization in America happened last year, right? You know, this is mm. about 20 or 30 women in ICE detention centers. There's ongoing class actions in Canada and Saskatchewan that targeted over the last 10 years, mostly First Nations women. And then in places like India and China, where sex selective abortion happens and allegations of sterilization of the Uyghur people in China. And the fact that 40% of women of a, a, a reproductive age in India are semi-permanently or permanently um, sterilized, is that it's the most popular form of contraception. These are, are, are they eugenics? I'm, I'm not sure, right? But they are definitely actions which would have been of great interest to the enthusiastic eugenicists of the early 20th century. You do write about um, a lot of the sort of science now, and obviously how how kind of uh, you know how gene science has, has evolved. And you talk about Dominic Cummings' uh, interest in this uh, in this figure, Stephen Sue, and you know Toby Young getting into trouble over attending a kind of uh, a kind of new eugenics conference. I'm not sure it was not called the New Eugenics Conference, but I mean I suppose this is where people who have been just sort of following the news would have been aware that something was sort of was bubbling up. Like, how would you define that in terms of its sort of scale and the ideas underpinning it? I mean, Dominic Cummings is not 
uh, a scientist, we should say. What is this trend? Where's it coming from? Well, I, I think that it's a, it's a manifestation of something which has happened in science for as long as it, science has existed in, in, in Western culture and in its current manifestation. So for, you know, for several hundred years now, it's the thing that happens at the birth of scientific racism in the 17th and 18th century. It's the thing that happens at the birth of eugenics in the 19th century. And what it is, is people using new or immature or underdeveloped or even misrepresented scientific ideas in order to prop up their, their pre-existing political ideologies. Now, that, that sounds a little bit highfalutin. We all do that to a certain extent. But there's a very marked example of this in the birth of scientific racism, which is that the idea of race um, or the racial structures that, that, that we recognize today are invented by men of science in order to justify the political ideology of European expansion, right? So Emma Dabry's phrase in this is that race is invented to serve racism. And I think that's true, right? I think mm. that's demonstrably true. Uh, you get a similar sort of pattern happening in the eugenics era of the 19th century, you know, cultural and, and political turmoil of late Victorian Britain suddenly latches onto this pseudoscientific idea to justify what everyone was was talking about doing from Malthus onwards, well, from Plato onwards, but Malthus um, sort of formalizing it end of the 19th, end of the 18th, beginning of the 19th century. And then I think that what we're seeing at the moment is a revitalization of similar sorts of political ideas using what is now the reproductive technology and new genetics that has been available to us for the last 20 or 30 years. So why you say Dominic Cummings, who I'm not politically aligned with at all, is not a scientist, that is most certainly true. I say in the book that I think he's made a decent fist of trying to understand some pretty pretty intense genetics, some stuff that you know we don't teach at, at University College London until they're in their second or third years. But I think that the difference is that if you only engage in these sorts of difficult science, technical, jargon-filled, data-filled science, to the point where your political preconceptions or ideologies are reinforced, then you're not doing science at all. What you're doing is you're using it to scaffold your political views. So those guys tinkering around the edges saying, well, why can't we do this? If this technology is available to us, then we should be pursuing it. That is where I think we, we fall into terrible traps, which are fundamentally no different from the birth of of eugenics a hundred years ago. There's a Darwinian quote from The Descent of Man, which I think really just captures it perfectly, which is that ignorance begets confidence far more readily than does knowledge. And that just feels like a mantra which is as true in 1871 as it is today. And I suppose like maybe the, the, the biggest question for me reading this was that you show that sort of eugenics then failed on both a moral level and a scientific level, that what was done was not just repulsive it didn't work but then that makes me wonder if the science were incredibly precise and reliable does that change the morality of it at all is there ever and i'm not talking here about the kind of the, the really grim mass sterilizations and um the sort of the real horrors there but is there potentially a benign form of eugenics or is the whole concept no matter how advanced the science becomes just discreditable that there is something wrong with it that's another excellent question and and you know a complex one to try and address so 
fundamentally, it relies on a little bit of definition. I'm mostly opposed to sort of taxonomic definitions or rigidity in, in definitions because I, I think they don't necessarily address what a thing does rather than attempt to, to pin down what a thing is. But I think that if you take the view that eugenics is a, is a top-down ideology, a top-down political intervention, which is the attempt by governments or the powerful to control the reproductive biology of other people within their, within society, then, well, there's a morality that comes with that. I don't necessarily feel qualified to discuss, right? Because, I, I mean, I have, I have views on it. It's antithetical to personal freedom. It's antithetical to choice and it's antithetical to basic, you know, views of liberties as set up. You know, I, I start the book with talking about the unalienable rights as laid out in, in the US Constitution. Two out of three of them are violated by top-down eugenics policies. So the ethics and morality of imposing population control or reproductive control on individuals in society, I think is always going to be morally problematic. Conversely, though, what emerged out of the eugenics work of the early 20th century and the laboratories that developed much of a sort of foundations of, of studying human heredity, they also developed interventions, medical interventions, which were for the alleviation of individual suffering, of enabling parents to make choices about bringing lives into the world that may have suffered from diseases such as Huntington's disease or cystic fibrosis. And we've been doing that since IVF was a thing in the late 1970s and then embryo selection in the 1980s. And now we have much more sophisticated technology, which again, I don't think is eugenics and is for parental choice and the alleviation of suffering in individuals, but nevertheless would have been of interest to the eugenicists of the past. So again, I've given you the sort of scientist, uh, I'm not going to talk about the ethics, I'm going to wave my hands and give you equivocal answers on everything. Sorry, it's just what we do. But then I suppose that's why I got so much out of the book, because you know that one could go in there just go, well, here, here I'm going to find out a bunch, of, about, about a bunch of very bad guys whose very bad idea led to, you know, the, the kind of the darkest heart of the, of the 20th century. And yes, that's sort of true. And yet there's all these other things and there's all these sorts of complexities in terms of people's motives, in terms of people's, you know, different political leanings. Um, and I suppose it's the moral mess of it that makes it such an interesting topic. It's not just like, look at these, look at these bastards. Yeah, I mean, I hope you're right. That's what I set out to do. Yes, there is an element of look at these bastards, but it, it, from I approach these subjects from a scientist's point of view, because that's what I am, but I write a lot about history, so I have to sort of adopt, I cosplay as a historian. The question that I always end up as is, what is society taking from new science in order to enact or justify political ideologies or political, political views? And so that interplay between basic research and, and its action in society is, is a place where I sort of, well, I comfortably sit there because it's so uncomfortable. But that's where the discussion needs to be. And I think that there's a couple of things going on there. Well, one of which is that I think that scientists need to know their own history better than they do. One of my history advisors, Peter Frankopan, reminds me constantly that scientists often make bad historians because they don't apply the same scrutiny to historical evidence that they do to their scientific evidence. And I think that's true. There's a slightly dismissive tone amongst some scientists, my colleagues included, about understanding history, which is that it's somehow easier than understanding genomic data. 
And I don't think that is true at all. That interplay between you know, what we do in, in isolated labs, which is for the pursuit of knowledge or sometimes for the transfer of that knowledge to help humanity, how that sits in the rest of society in the broader context of history is where I think these ideas are both interesting and deeply problematic, um, which is, you know, brings us full circle. This is where you, you started asking me about the politics and politics mm. and science being inseparable. And I think that they just are. I think that scientists need to lead these conversations or at least try and inculcate an uncertainty about what we do know and therefore this is where we need to put the brakes on or this is where the conversation needs to not happen in our coffee rooms in in genetics labs but at a societal level and so part of my work is trying to sort of foment those discussions oh well adam rutherford thank you so much for joining me my pleasure and sorry about the taylor swift reference <laughs> that's all right <laughs> control is out now published by weidenfeld and nicholson And thank you for listening. If you enjoyed our conversation, please help spread the word by telling a friend or giving us a five-star rating on iTunes. You could also consider backing The Bunker on Patreon. Take care and see you soon. The Bunker Daily was presented by Dorian Linsky. The group editor was Andrew Harrison. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis. And the producers were Jacob Archbold, Yelna Sofronievich, and me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.